0: Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News. And I'm Rick Klein, Political Director at ABC News. On today's podcast, we'll be talking to Sean Spicer of the Republican National Committee about what this week means. I mean, this is the week that it appears Donald Trump is not only the presumptive nominee, but the leader of the Republican Party. How's that playing over at the RNC? We'll also be talking to Brian Fallon of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Hillary Clinton is steadily marching towards the Democratic nomination, but doing it by losing along the way. A big loss in Indiana to Bernie Sanders. Who would have thought, Rick, that we'd be in a situation where Donald Trump became the presumptive Republican nominee? Or Hillary Clinton pulled it off on the Democratic side.
1: I, the answer to that, not even Donald Trump thought that. I, this is unfathomable. I mean, and in some ways, John, it's happening too fast for even Donald Trump. You're, you're seeing the signs of strain inside the Republican Party. The war is over, but the battles continue. Donald Trump was not ready for this to be wrapped up this early. He was expecting a fight. He was expecting to continue to travel and, and to rail against Lion's Head. Now he needs to unite the party. At the same time, he builds a campaign apparatus, shift to convention planning, talk about the veep stakes, all of it happening at the same time. Oh, yeah, by the way, he's got to square up for the general election because we're already seeing shades of that from Hillary Clinton.
0: So, Rick, I was there at Trump Tower on Tuesday night as Donald Trump came and gave his speech following his victory in Indiana. And I have to tell you, you're you're exactly right. The senior staff, uh, the senior advisors now to the Trump campaign were all gathered around watching in the lobby of Trump Tower as Ted Cruz gave that speech, and I was talking to them just before, and I said, and as I told you, uh, uh, that I believed that there was a chance, a, a, a real chance, that uh, Ted Cruz would actually drop out, and they thought I was crazy. the, the this was the this is the top people in the Trump campaign. Said so there's no way Cruz is going to drop out. This guy's going to go till the end. He's going to fight until he, you know, uh, even after he uh, doesn't have a chance. And so I, the bottom line is they were as surprised as anybody else. They certainly did not see. Cruz dropping out coming.
1: That's right. And, it's, and it makes for this unusual start to the general election because there's so much, uh, so many hard feelings that still have to, to happen on the other side. John Kasich, of course, getting out a day later. And what a week, John. I mean, in the space of seven days, you went from Ted Cruz choosing a running mate, the showdown in Indiana, the talk about the likelihood of a contested convention to Donald Trump getting the coronation, uh, getting the support of even the Republican National Committee, everyone falling into line. Well, Maybe not everyone falling into line for Donald Trump, but Republicans, you know, wearily taking him now as their as their all but uh, all but inevitable nominee. He will be the nominee of the Republican Party. And, John, my sense in talking to people is that as much as we saw this as a as a growing likelihood over the last couple of months, it, it wasn't until Ted Cruz dropped out that people started to process that. And I included the people among that, high-ranking elected officials in the Republican Party. There was always a thought of a chance, of a contested convention, of some kind of wackiness happening that was going to deny him the nomination. Trump himself talks about that all the time. So it wasn't until that moment, I think, that this has become a reality for people, and it feels like it's a strange kind of alternate reality, like we're not living in the same universe that we were just a week ago.
0: And I've heard from senior people in the party, the sources that you and I talk to on a regular basis, uh, many of them saying privately, some of them publicly, that there's no way that they could vote for Donald Trump, Uh, some saying that they are going to be voting for Hillary Clinton, others saying they'll simply stay home or or, or go third party. But I have to tell you, looking publicly, uh, some of those who made the strongest case against Donald Trump... Now that he's the inevitable nominee here, I see more coming together than driving apart. I mean, one, one, one example is uh, Peter King, a yeah. uh, congressman of Long Island, was one of Trump's harshest critics. He's quoted in the New York Times saying, you know, he, he, you know, Donald Trump would be better than Hillary Clinton. And it might have something to do with the fact that Donald Trump carried his district out in Long Island massively. Uh, so the overwhelming majority of Republican voters in Peter King's own district decided Donald Trump was the nominee. I mean, he doesn't have much of a choice.
1: It's such a telling uh, little little detail, and I think it sheds light on what Chris Christie did as well early on in the process of vindication for him to see what was growing. And I think that sentiment is important now for Donald Trump on a couple of levels. One is, it, it is putting people into line. Donald Trump has has won the nomination, is winning the nomination by getting a heck of a lot more votes than anybody else. So just to to respect the voters for a second inside the Republican Party. And then beyond that, for Trump, loyalty matters quite a bit. And and he's going to remember the people that were more understanding of the sentiments that were driving his candidacy at the beginning and play off of that. Uh, He is not a particularly unifying uh, personality. He is not a particularly unifying force. His message is not one of unity. At least not yet. But the one thing that he has united is Republican voters, actual human beings who call themselves Republicans who voted in primaries. He brought the party together in that one narrow sense. And that's why you're seeing people, by and large, fall in line. It's not everybody. As you say, there's talk of third parties, there's talk of staying home, there's talk of just focusing the big money on the House and the Senate. But the, the, the party, for the most part, is falling into line behind Donald Trump.
0: And we're going to be talking to the Republican National Committee Chief Strategist, Communications Director Sean Spicer, uh, who now suddenly finds himself uh, the chief strategist for a party that is effectively run by Donald Trump. We'll be back in a minute.
1: Hey, this is ABC's Dan Harris. I hope you're enjoying John Carl's podcast. I got a recommendation for an even better one. It's my podcast. It's called 10% Happier. I'm just kidding. It's not better than John's podcast. John's superior to me in every possible way. But if you want to hear more from ABC News folks, you can listen to my podcast, 10% Happier, or lots of other ABC News podcasts if you go to abcnewspodcast.com or to the Apple Podcast Store.
0: Welcome back to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm Jonathan Carl,
1: And I'm Rick Klein.
0: And we have joining us now Sean Spicer, Chief Strategist for the RNC. Sean, thanks for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Great to be with you guys.
0: So this is a heck of a week. Uh, Rick and I were just talking. It was just a week ago that Ted Cruz was naming his running mate. Suddenly uh, there's nobody left running. It was a month ago that Donald Trump looked like uh, the wheels were coming off his campaign with a with a big loss in Wisconsin. So I've got to ask you just directly, is is Donald Trump not only the presumptive nominee, but is he the leader of the Republican Party at this point?
2: Uh, he will be the presumptive nominee uh, we 've always said that you to be the presumptive nominee, you have to have twelve hundred and thirty seven delegates. I think after this week, there was no question that the mathematical trajectory was going to get him there, and it was reality was staring us in the face. We acknowledged it and wanted to make sure that we could first pivot to uh, a point where we would talk about party unity, get everyone on board, something that you guys talked about in the last segment, uh, and then make sure that we were really kind of pivoting as an entire team. To the general election to take on Hillary Clinton.
0: But is he effectively not just on the way to being the presumptive nominee, but is he the voice of the Republican Party?
2: Well, look, the way, I've always answered it this way, and this goes back several cycles. This is nothing new, and I'm not trying to... Is I, I think the, the party has several leaders. I mean, the RNC is led by Chairman Rice Priebus, so the RNC head is always a leader. If we have the House, so Paul Ryan's definitely a leader. Mitch McConnell's a leader. Uh, we have several governors, but he is clearly, whoever the nominee is in this case, it will be Donald Trump, is going to be the great, the, 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 the biggest voice, if you will. And if, the, if you have the presidency, then by default, yes. Uh, but on the trail, there are... Several folks. I mean, I think Paul Ryan is one of the biggest policy leaders in our party. He's a big thinker. Ryan's previous, obviously, from a political standpoint. But there's no question in any party when you have a presidential nominee or a president, that person by default becomes one of the biggest voices in that in that ecosphere.
0: There was a report in the New York Times, uh, Sean, that uh, staffers at the RNC. Right were...
2: now, the, the, the report was co- completely false and
1: off base, uh, which should not come as a surprise. We should probably say, say what probably... it was though, first. First of all.
2: Sure. I mean, basically, the report said that there was a meeting in which staffers were told to get on board with Donald Trump. That, that was actually not the case at all. The New York Times has done so much as acknowledge that. They, they said, well, that's not what the meeting was about, but we believe that was the intent of it. There was a meeting, which we've had several times. I've been here now going on six years, where we've gotten into a phase of a cycle. We said, okay, guys, we're ready for the midterms. We're getting ready for the general. We need to make sure everyone's focus is ready, because now we're at that phase. As the person that was in the meeting, I can Tell you the word nominee, the word Trump never were actually uttered. We were talking about making sure that people understood that during a cycle, people change. You know, want to go to grad school or make personal plans. We were telling people, okay, guys, we have now effectively had a presumptive nominee, and we are getting ready to the general. Everyone's head needs to start focusing on that. You know, that we are not, um, we're not in a primary phase anymore. And the New York Times, you know, chose to opine on a factual story, uh, which, you know, doesn't, should not surprise any conservatives. Um, so the story is 100% false.
1: So you're not going to grad school either?
2: I already have a degree. That helps. Uh, oh,
1: excuse me. Excuse right, me. Right, right.
2: No, I, I, I appreciate the, so that. So that prevents me from using
1: that one. <laughs> good, good for you. So I, I want to I ask you about something that we saw from, from Mitch McConnell. You mentioned a prominent Republicans. Obviously, he's the Senate majority leader. Uh, and, and he put out a statement um, uh, just the other day that said uh, that he would support the presumptive nominee and acknowledging that's likely to be Donald Trump. And then this. Right. He said, quote, as the presumptive nominee, he now has the opportunity and the obligation – to unite our party around our goals. And the obligation, to me, was interesting choice of language. Is that something that you agree with, the RNC agrees with? Does he, has he already united the party by virtue of his votes, or does he have an obligation now in terms of his messaging to do more?
3: Well,
2: I think there, he. I think by his own admission, he's to you know he, he understands that this was a bruising primary. A lot of elbows were thrown. There were 17 candidates that said some pretty nasty things about each other, uh, and I think that there is a healing process that that has to occur, uh, which he began the other night, and I think will continue. And I think part of that is both internally, but then externally, people recognizing that while we still may have differences, or they had a different candidate that there was their first choice. The bigger prize is making sure that Hillary Clinton does not take the White House because, look, this is not about just four years and saying, okay, well, I'm going to sit out this election or I don't want to. This is about recognizing that the choices and decisions that Hillary Clinton would make during a four-year presidency would affect at least a generation.
1: So the same way that you talk about your own staff moving to a general election, your expectation, your hope is that Donald Trump changes his tone, recalibrates for the general, takes aim at Hillary, and does it in a little bit of a different way?
2: Well, sure, in the sense that when you're talking to a primary audience, You know, the, the folks that make up a primary, Republican primary electorate is not the same demographic that you are reaching out to uh, in, a, in a general election in terms of, you know, some of the minority communities, uh, some of the places, so you, you know, the, the states that you go. Um, and so I think what we need to do is, is, as any campaign recognizes, when you get out of that primary, expand who you're talking to and how you talk to them. Absolutely.
0: How concerned are uh, you about the, the Trump effect uh, on your other uh, candidates? I mean, you've got, I mean, you know, it's no secret. Just look, look, look at any poll. You see his negatives among women, his negatives among, his, among Hispanics. Um, he's, you know, certainly, uh, you know, excited uh, uh, the Republican base here. But how right. worried are you that, uh, that he could not only have a serious problem winning a general election, but that he could impact your, uh, your Senate candidates especially?
2: Well, look, I mean, if you look at the way that he dispatched folks during the primary, I mean, he he has done a very good – he's run an an excellent campaign. He's done it his way, Um, and I think there's something to be said for that. And I think as he heads to a general election, he talked about this the other night where he understands the need to broaden the appeal, and I think he's going to do just that. But I think that, you know, you've got a lot of the political class and a lot of the pundits and a lot of the journalists that want to write, you know, act as if this is November 9th right now and say, well, this is how the race is going to end. We've got 180 days to go till the election, 74 until a convention. I think people are going to be surprised at how well this thing all works out. I, I really do. And I think the interesting thing is, if I were a Democrat, I'd be a lot more scared about the fact of a prospect of, a, of an indictment coming down from the, from, the, from the FBI on Hillary Clinton. I mean, they have a serious problem there. And I know that for a lot of, journalists, they don't want to discuss the rift in the Democratic Party, but I would argue that it's a much bigger problem for Hillary Clinton, because not only is her rhetoric a problem and her, the level of distrust that she has with the American people as a whole, but you look at the policies that Bernie Sanders has dragged her to the extreme left on, and that's going to be a big problem as well for her in a general election.
1: John, be honest. Were you were you looking forward to a contested convention, regardless of the outcome? Just like the, the, the you know, we we've had so many conversations around this. Right. I know we we know Rule sixteen A two and forty B, and you know, we were gearing up for this. Were you was part of you saying, "Wow, let's 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 see this play out."
2: Well, so there's two sides to anyone, right? Uh, and you all, we all probably get this. There's this, this the political junkie in you that wants to be part of history and see something different, but then there's also the political reality of this, which is, you know we the sooner that we have a nominee the sooner we're able to turn to a to a general election um and that that's a huge advantage to our party not only just in terms of of Coordination and making sure that we're in sync and focusing our fire on Hillary Clinton, Um, but but also importantly, just just you know, frankly, Uh, money—the the ability to get a joint fundraising agreement up and running, bringing money into the party is extremely important. And I think that you know, if you're effectively for all of the you know, people have to stop and just remember, we're basically eight days behind where we were with Mitt Romney. He was the effective. Uh, presumptive nominee on April 25th. Uh, Trump became it two days ago. When you actually look at a calendar, we're eight days off of where we were four years ago. Uh, We've moved our convention up. We're in a much better place as a party. We've got tremendous more resources. We've got probably the best ground game, best opposition research, and best digital and data operation of any political party in history. So I think that where we are right now, um, in terms of wanting to win, this is the better outcome. In terms of wanting to be able to write a book afterwards, you know the open convention is probably cooler, but I don't. I think that wouldn't put you in a good position to win.
0: And, and just one last question, Sean. I know you have to go. The the you mentioned fundraising, and Trump has made it clear now that that he's going to help uh, the uh, the RNC raise money. He's going to raise money for his own general election campaign. Uh, you know, th- this is a guy who I've seen over and over again. Uh, one of the big applause lines is that he's been funding his own campaign and he's not dependent on those big lobbyists who buy their way in and get over there. You know, he mentions Pharma. He mentions, you know, all the big uh, fat cats. Uh, Are we really going to see Donald Trump uh, going and doing the rubber chicken circuit with uh, with all the big uh, wealthy uh, lobbyists and and, uh, traditional Republican power players that he has spent six months attacking relentlessly?
2: I don't I mean I think that's a question for the campaign how they structure you know whatever financing mechanism they're going to utilize I think when it comes to the party one of the things that you mentioned and I think it's important not just for him but for any of the folks is that what what Trump is committed to which is extremely important is understanding that we as a party provide resources for the entire ticket up and down the ticket that data and digital operation that I talked to expanding our field operation Um, while it's at historic levels now being able to exponentially grow that that's what he understands that only a robust a continued robust party helps the entire party, and he's committed to not just helping himself, but making sure that those folks running for Senate, Governor, and House, Mayor, have the same resources that they need to continue to grow our party throughout this country.
0: All right, Sean Spicer, Chief Strategist for the Republican National Committee. Thanks for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. So, uh, Rick, uh, it sounds like everything is Perfectly well uh, for the Republican Party. Listen to Sean. Better than ever. Hey,
1: better I, than ever. I, I'll say this about about Sean and about his boss, Ryan's previous. They get criticized a lot for you know how this process has played out, but. You know, for all of the slings and arrows that headed their way, I mean, to to end this process the way it has before the convention, whatever you say about Donald Trump, the voters voted for him. Uh, that that's he's going to be the nominee, and uh, there were a lot of freakouts along the way. But you know, the, the the point about the timeline he makes, it could be worse. I think is one thing you'll you you might hear from some Republicans at some worse. point. It
0: could be worse. It could be worse. Uh, yeah, Donald Trump could emerge after a long and bloody fight at the convention where half the party walks out. Uh, so, you know, this leads us right into the general election. Uh, we're going to be talking shortly to Tad Devine, uh, top strategist for the Bernie Sanders campaign. But first I want to turn to somebody who uh, has been considered the, the presumptive Democratic nominee for about two and a half years, uh, um, somebody who works for the the the, uh, the person that has been seen as the presumptive nominee, Hillary Clinton, Brian Fallon, uh, my good friend. Thank you for joining us on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. So uh, we've been saying it for, for a long time. I mean, uh, Secretary Clinton is uh, is well on her way to getting the, the delegates she needs to uh, to clinch the Democratic nomination. I mean, there's really, it, it seems virtually impossible for Bernie Sanders to catch up. But what what's going on i mean she loses a big race in indiana and uh... H- how's it looking for next week in, in west virginia and kentucky
4: well we're in a stretch of our calendar right now where some of the states are once again uh... suitable for senator sanders we've gone through stretches on the primary calendar where that has been true before uh... we're, we're probably in the midst of another uh... set of states that are favorable to him in terms of the demographics and open primary formats uh... but look i think that uh... A typical example was what happened in Indiana. He he got the victory there, and we give him a tip of the cap for that. But in the end, it just netted five delegates, and so the state of the race is unchanged. You know, from a popular vote perspective, she's got a lead of three million votes, uh, a lead in the pledge delegate count of around 300 pledged delegates, and so we know who the nominee is going to be. And so we're fully aware of the fact that Senator Sanders intends to remain in this through the middle of June. That's fine by us. Uh, we are undertaking. Uh, general election preparations at the same time that we're closing out the primary, and we're capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time.
0: But is it a problem? I mean, usually, at this point, you see the party starting to unify around uh, the the presumptive nominee or the the likely nominee. Uh, is is it a problem for you now? I mean, you have this absolutely bizarre turn of events where it's the Republicans that have uh, centered on their candidate, and and it's Donald Trump, and you know Hillary Clinton may be looking at going another month before. Uh, before she's actually clinched and, uh, and, and finally vanquished uh, Bernie Sanders.
4: Well, John, I've read a few stories in the last 24 hours about how Hillary Clinton now finds herself in a position where she's fighting a two-front contest, and and my reaction to that is she works twice as hard as anybody else on any given day, anyway. And so uh, we think that we can make the general election preparations that we need to, even as we honor the primary and contest all these states all the way through the middle of June. Already, even before uh, Donald Trump emerged as the presumptive nominee the other night, uh, we were already in the process of hiring state directors for battleground states. She's already started to mix in her, uh, in terms of her travel schedule, battleground states. You saw her in Ohio this past tuesday after uh... visiting uh two primary states the day before so we we think we can operate on this dual track without a problem and look i don't need to remind you guys in two thousand eight obviously the contest went all the way through june and, and president obama ended up in a pretty good uh... in a pretty good place in november of that year anyway so uh, i think that this is something that people are focusing on now but i think what will matter in the end is who the two parties nominate not when they finalize their nomination process and if the general election match up is going to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump I think that uh, Democrats will be m- a lot more confident with the hand that they have to play with that nominee that,
1: than the Republican Brian, I want to talk about the general election matchup in a moment, but but when you're watching these primaries unfold, when you lose in Indiana, you mentioned West Virginia and Kentucky, they may they may not be the the best states for you either. Do you draw any lessons at all from the fact that Secretary Clinton, even though she appears to have wrapped up the nomination, is getting fewer votes than Bernie Sanders? That Bernie Sanders voters are showing up in, in larger numbers, or is it you know is it irrelevant because you guys really aren't really playing the full game anymore.
4: Well, you make, a, you make a good point, which is that we have, because we're operating on this dual track and trying to undertake general election preparations, hire staff in states that have already held their primaries, you know, we need to allocate resources accordingly. And as you guys both know, we have not started soliciting funds for the general election yet. We are only raising actively for the primary. And so we have one set of funds uh, to wage this campaign right now. And so yes, accordingly we we made the decision to efficiently allocate resources, and that included not going on the air at all in Indiana, whereas you saw Senator Sanders expend you know some somewhere in the neighborhood of two million dollars on television there. So I think that certainly helped him but in general i I do think, as I said before, that we're seeing the same dynamic that has been true in this primary play out in some of these states. it's just a matter of a state like Indiana you know. Closely resembles uh, a lot of the states that Senator Sanders has won in the past. That's an open primary format, which has favored him, uh, because uh, as, as has been well documented, uh, he has brought independents in in greater numbers, uh, and and that helps him in these open primary formats. Also, it, it, demographically, in these states that are somewhat less diverse, he tends to fare better. So I think it's just the pattern repeating itself. I don't think it portends anything with respect to a general election. We saw in states like Ohio uh, that's, that that uh, Secretary Clinton was able to prevail, even among voters that said that trade was their top concern. I know that uh, Donald Trump is looking ahead to those uh, Big Ten states, thinking that he's going to have appeal there and switch some of those states that have traditionally been blue. But like I said, you saw in Ohio that, 55, 44, even among Democrats that said that trade was a top concern for them, they ended up supporting Hillary Clinton.
1: So on Donald Trump, what is the Trump playbook? I, I remember talking to Obama aides about Mitt Romney, and they had a very clear sense, even before the primaries ended, of how you run against Mitt Romney, how to define Mitt Romney. And I, I feel like that the, the playbook against Ted Cruz would have been pretty clear as well, but I, I I wonder how much Donald Trump just challenges your assumptions. How do you run against a guy who is so unpredictable, who does as much media as he does, that seems to contradict himself as much as he does, who has such a, a such a rich history of being in so many different places and different sides of issues? What what's the Trump play, the anti-Trump playbook?
4: Sure. So uh, I'd make a few points in response to that question. Firstly. Um, we, the, the number one concern that we have as Democrats is complacency within our party. There's been a lot written in the last few days about the historically high negatives that Donald Trump will enter the general election with. And while that is true, uh, if Democrats get complacent, uh, then we will play right into Donald Trump's hands and we could end up with a catastrophe of Donald Trump occupying the Oval Office. Uh, so we go into this expecting a very tight contest, wire to wire, even in, if you look back to 2012 when you know Barack Obama Felled Mitt Romney, and the the margin was pretty decisive from the Electoral College standpoint. As, as you guys know, Mitt Romney was uh, predicting victory right up to that election day. So that cl- contest was close, and it felt close, all the way through the general election, and we expect that to be the same this time around. That's point number one. But in terms of our approach, you heard Secretary Clinton refer to it a little bit in, in, her, in an interview she did on CNN. Uh, earlier this week with Anderson Cooper, uh, we we've learned some lessons from the way that uh, he contested the primary and uh, the way that he was able to marginalize and ultimately defeat so many uh, uh, very uh, accomplished Republican candidates that had resumes as governors and senators. The number one thing that we go into this cycle realizing is that there are more news cycles than not are going to be won by. Uh, I should say, are going to be driven by news that Donald Trump makes. That doesn't mean he's going to win the day, however. What do I mean by that? I mean that he can say provocative things as he has done throughout uh, this campaign, and it will probably lead the news. Path. That does not mean that he put himself in better position that day to win a general election. And so what has worked for him in the in the Republican primary in terms of being insulting and demeaning and pitting Americans against each other, is good for a headline uh it will always lead the newscasts on the evening news is but that doesn't mean that he's d- doing anything to repair his situation with respect to women voters with respect to hispanic voters with respect to african american voters in fact just the opposite and so we will not feel uh on our heels just by virtue of the fact that he is 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 leading off the day with a with a tweet that is just doubling down on the misogyny and 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 the bigotry that we have seen throughout this campaign But that said, uh, you cannot be passive in the face of Donald Trump's unconventional approach. You need to be aggressive. Uh, That does not mean, however, uh, engaging with him in kind. So you saw Marco Rubio in the last throes of his campaign attempt to trade barbs with him and one-up him with a battle of quips. Uh, Even if you could compete with Donald Trump in a battle of quips, Our fundamental premise is that that is actually going to turn off most independent voters in a general election. So we're not going to chase him into the gutter. How are we going to then stay on offense against him? How are we going to take the fight to him if we're not going to try to beat him in a battle of one-liners? We have the ability to go after him, confront him, condemn him on policy issues, which is something that was not available to the Republican field because for the most part they agreed with him on policy and if there was any daylight between them and him on certain policy issues they didn't want to accentuate it because they were trying to appeal to his voters at the same time that he was so that is our ace in the hole we have all these policy issues from his uh... opposition to a minimum wage increase to his opposition to uh... pay equity laws for women uh... his desire to defund Planned parenthood uh... he wants to build a wall uh,
3: that he said. I think, I think, I think he was actually for... the
0: one Republican candidate that uh, was open to continuing to fund Planned Parenthood. But uh, hey, Brian, I, I've got I've got one last question for you. I, I know you still have to wrap up this uh, Democratic nomination. We'll be talking shortly to Tad Devine with the Bernie Sanders campaign, who sees this as far from over. But how much thought has been put into a running mate? Uh, is, is there any discussion there in Brooklyn at headquarters? Uh, has the as the secretary begun? Uh, The process of talking this through and thinking, uh, you know, what kind of person she'd be looking for and how the process of picking that person uh, will play out.
3: Well,
4: just to go back to the last question real quick, John, I think that what he has said with respect to Planned Parenthood is they do some good things like cancer screenings, which uh, it would be hard for anybody to object to. Uh, but uh, during the primary, he was very outspoken about the fact that he doesn't support their, their uh, other reproductive health services they provide for women. But uh, to answer your uh, but, 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 but uh, just, about just the running But pick meet.
0: up on that, I mean, we're, we're, y- y- even you had to be a little surprised that they uh, with Planned Parenthood being such a villain for Republicans and for conservatives, and with you know the cause of defunding Planned Parenthood being such a rallying cry for Republicans in Congress, to see that the guy that actually won was the person that actually said good things about Planned Parenthood and said he wouldn't fund their their uh, anything to do with abortion, but he thought that uh, their other work should be funded. It was you know kind of um, a little bit outside the box in terms of the other sixteen Republican candidates.
4: Well, in any case, he's got uh, 70% unfavorability rating right now with women to show for it. So if the <laughs> test is going to be who can stand up for women between yeah. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump will take our chances on running mate, uh, it's 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 too early in the process for that. And we're, we're, as we go through that process, when the time comes, we're not going to talk about it. I think that uh, it's an important part of the process and the time will come to undertake uh, the vetting process there. but. Uh, right now, we have enough on our plate in terms of uh, finishing out the primary and beginning these general election uh, preparations, which mostly for now include some travel to those states by the candidate and, and staffing up both at headquarters where we've now assembled a uh, battleground team uh, led by Marlon Marshall and also staffing up uh, in the form of state directors in battleground states across the country. The, other, the last piece is you know, we have started to transfer funds that we've been raising for this joint fundraising account to the state parties, and, and as a result, those state parties and many of these critical battlegrounds have begun hiring coordinated campaign field organizers that will help elect Democrats not just at the, at the top of the ticket, but up and down the ballot.
0: All right, Brian Fallon, Hillary Clinton's press secretary, thanks for taking time to join us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Brian. All right up next, we're going to talk to Bernie Sanders' senior advisor, Tad Devine, about the Bernie Sanders side of the equation, and we're also going to take questions from you that you passed on via Twitter. First out the door,
4: when it matters most, from all across the globe to every corner here at home, he asks, he listens. For more than a decade, he's been right there, everywhere, David Muir, covering our world. And when American jobs are on the line, he leads the charge. More Americans are now watching World News Tonight than in a decade. And we thank you. ABC's World News Tonight with David Muir. He reports to you.
0: Welcome back to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm Jonathan Carl, And I'm Rick Klein. Rick, we've got Tad Devine with us right now, senior advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Tad, thanks for joining us.
3: Good to be with you guys.
0: So congratulations on Indiana. uh, Another uh, big victory for Bernie Sanders. But as Brian Fallon just pointed out to us, you only netted what five or six uh, more delegates than she did.
3: I, I, I think I think we're up to seven now. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, you know, the the system of proportional representation that we have in the Democratic Party makes it difficult to win a large delegate advantage unless you win the way Bernie won in Vermont with eighty six percent of the vote. I mean, that's you know, but I, but we think there's a lot of delegates in play between now and the end. And, Particularly in the biggest state in California, there's tremendous opportunities. There's so many congressional districts there, but just great opportunities to net a lot of delegates. So so we're going to continue on. We're going to try to win states and try to win delegates. And when every voter's had the chance to speak in this process, then we'll, we'll see where we are. We think we can make up a lot of distance between now and then.
0: And is it important at this point to change the tone of the primary? I mean, look, the, the Democratic primary has been a very friendly affair compared to the Republican primary. I, I will give you that. But but these attacks on Hillary Clinton uh, do cut. Uh, they, they, they've been effective and they've clearly uh, damaged her even among Democratic voters, let alone uh, you know, uh, independents and Republicans that she would need to turn to in a, uh, in, a, in a general election. You know, the attacks on her Goldman Sachs speeches, uh, the, 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 the attacks on her uh, flip-flops on, on various positions. Is, is there a need to uh, – obviously another big one or attack on her vote now more than a decade ago uh, in favor of the Iraq war. Is it, is it time for Senator Sanders to kind of start to pivot to a more um, – you know, to, to, to a less confrontational – uh message.
3: Well Jonathan, from the beginning I think we have always preferred to have a debate on issues. Uh and uh you know, a lot of the back and forth has come in this campaign, if you if you look back on it really, whether it was the first debate when Hillary launched a series of attacks against Bernie Sanders on the issue of guns or subsequently in Iowa and New Hampshire when they attacked him on everything from his health care plans and saying he wanted to take people's health care away, uh, to a variety of other issues, I would argue, and this is my perspective, that the the attacks in this campaign have not originated with us. Uh, Bernie has defended himself. He's defended his record. And he's also highlighted, you know, Secretary Clinton's record on issues like campaign finance. Now, you know, we can have a very civil uh, and a very substantive back and forth in the weeks that remain in the primary process uh, if the Clinton campaign wants that, that kind of campaign. I think we're very happy to have it in recent days. They've been more subdued. I think that's very positive. Um, You know, Bernie wants to talk about his message, though, and his issues. He believes the economy of this country is rigged. Uh, It's sending almost all the new wealth to the top. He's in West Virginia today talking about incredible poverty that we have throughout this nation. Those are the kind of things that he would like to focus on the real issues that are affecting the lives of people. And, uh, you know, I think we can do that. I mean, listen, if we were running a normal campaign, I heard this morning that there's a very tough ad out in West Virginia right now about comments that Hillary Clinton made about, you know, coal miners there are taking away their jobs. That's not our ad. Okay, we're not doing that. Some down-ballot judicial candidate is doing it in West Virginia. So a lot of the stuff that's out there, you know, it is not coming from us, okay? It's coming from Republicans. It's coming from others. Uh, you know, and I don't think we're responsible, you know, really for, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, unfavorability that is part of her profile. I think we've run a really respectable campaign. And yes, we have engaged, but I would argue the engagement came because we were attacked, we responded. The rest of the way, it can be very positive, very very constructive. I hope it is.
1: Tad, the, the the Senator Sanders has made clear that he, he the con- the convention as he said will be a, con- a contested contest uh, that you fight it all the way through to Philadelphia to try to to try to flip even super delegates so the 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 history as you know has been you pick a running mate before you get to the convention does Senator Sanders plan to select and announce a running mate before you get to Philadelphia we
3: don't have any plans I think it's premature to talk about anything like that right now our plan right now is to talk to voters. Uh, is to win as many delegates in as many contests as we can between now and the time voting ends in the middle of June. after that, you know it'll be the final phase of the process then between then and the convention. so now we're not we're not focused on that you know the, a lot of people I think you know many in the press and certainly the Clinton campaign and others believe the campaign is over the race for the nomination. We think the voters haven't come to that conclusion yet, and the latest evidence of that is what happened in Indiana last Tuesday and I think what's going to happen in West Virginia next Tuesday that voters really do want a choice. We're going to give them that choice. And when that process is over, you know, then we'll talk about the next phase, which is the final phase of the process.
1: Tad, you've been around democratic politics a long, long time. And I just wonder if you look at the, if you take a step back from the, the fight right now, is there any definition of victory for this campaign That falls short of winning the nomination. Is there a way to influence the debate, to have influence the debate, to have influence the nominee and the running mate and the ticket going forward where you'll be able to, to, to step back and say, you know what, we didn't win this thing, but we won where it mattered.
3: Well, listen, by that standard, Bernie Sanders has already gained an enormous victory. You know, I mean, listen, when he got into this race a little more than a year ago, I think it would be fair to say that he was not taken seriously as a candidate. Uh, I don't think people would have believed that he would be able to, through small contributions, raise $210 million in a year. Uh, Hillary Clinton's evolution on a number of issues, from the TPP to the Keystone Pipeline and and, uh, on other issues as well, has been towards Bernie Sanders' positions on these issues. Now, we think that's all really good. Uh, it's evidence of the fact that they understand that if you want to energize the Democratic Party and also a rising electorate in America that Barack Obama did twice, you're going to have to speak powerfully to those issues. So I think in that sense, you know, he's run a tremendous victory, uh, uh, you know, by the challenge that he's made. But the victory he's seeking is not symbolic. It is real. We're trying to win the nomination. We're going to keep trying till the end. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll, he'll have a chance to be the nominee. We'll let the
0: voters decide that. Well, I would entirely agree that in, in a real sense he's already won. And I remember talking to you uh, as soon as he got into this race, and y- you know nobody thought he was going to go as far as he did. That The big question would be whether or not he would get high enough in the polls to qualify for debate so he could put some of his issues on the table. I mean this was – he was seen by, by, by many people, and I, I would have to confess myself as well as, as an issue candidate, somebody that was in here to raise issues. But he has attracted these huge crowds. He has given uh, Hillary Clinton an incredible run for the nomination. He's still in it. He's winning states. When you look out and you see the the supporters that he has brought in, particularly uh, the young, I mean, the the, the margins that he has had, the margin of victory among young voters has been absolutely astounding in this race. What happens to all of those voters if Hillary Clinton... uh, gets this nomination as, you know, I think you would acknowledge, would, which is certainly the overwhelming favorite at this point. What happens? Do they, do they suddenly rally around uh, Hillary Clinton? Do they turn out for her uh, in the general election, or is she going to have to fight for that?
3: Well, I think, I think she's certainly going to have to fight for, for those supporters. I mean, you know, our hope is that the people that Bernie's brought into the process, particularly young people, remain engaged. I mean, I think that's one of the great achievements of this campaign. If you look at uh, the latest evidence, is Indiana. It's astounding to me that you would have 18% of the electorate in the youngest age cohort, uh, in, in that case, 17 to 29-year-olds, and 16% of the electorate in the exit polls in Indiana in 65-plus. I mean, we normally see 2 to 1, sometimes 3 to 1, 65-plus over 18 to 29. So, uh you know, and what was
0: Senator Sanders' margin among those uh, uh, 17 well, to 29? Well, in, the,
3: in, the in, in 17 to 24, he won 82 percent of the vote. Okay, believe yeah, it or not. It's and he won unbelievable. Yeah. In the next one. So, so you're talking about someone who obviously is bringing people in. So our hope is, you know, not just that they came in to vote for Bernie Sanders. Okay, that's great, and we're encouraging them. We're going to try to do it all. We're going to try to register a huge number of young people in California, for example. And I think that's part of what he's contributing to the process. But Bernie's hope is that they're not just in for a vote. They're in for a lifetime, that these young people are going to be activated in politics. They're going to take a stake in their own future by participating in the political process. And and it's not just young people, too. The independents who he's brought into the process, where that's been allowed. We couldn't do it in New York, but he did a lot of it in Wisconsin. He did a lot of it in Indiana. And he'll be able to do it in California as well. These are the people we want to bring into the Democratic Party, bring into the process, so we can change politics in America and change the agenda for the future. (laughs)
0: All right, Tad Devine with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tad. And we'll talk to you going forward, all the way towards. Uh, we, we're you know we're all for at least one contested convention. So uh, <laughs> well, it appears we'll it's not going to be in Cleveland. Maybe it'll be in Philadelphia.
3: Okay. Look forward to it.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Tad. Hey, Rick. We're doing something new here on the po- Powerhouse Politics podcast. We're going to take questions that people have submitted. Uh, via Twitter hashtag powerhouse politics. We've got a couple uh, that we'll we'll try now. And Rick, I know you haven't seen these questions yet. uh, So I don't mean to kind of ambush you. But we've got a couple of very good questions uh, from our listeners. And we encourage others, please, uh, please submit questions for next week. But are you ready for the first one, Rick? Bring it. Okay, here we go. Could Hillary Clinton pick a Republican for VP within Democratic Party rules? it seems that many republicans will be looking for an excuse not to vote for trump plus it would put action into her talk of unifying the country so could she do it
1: yes the answer is yes there's nothing that i'm aware of john in 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 republican or democratic party rules that would prevent uh, the convention from selecting, which is technically what happens is a roll call for the vice president as well as the president uh, for selecting a, a running mate of any party. Uh, you, you might recall that uh, there was talk that John McCain had conversations with uh, with uh, or sorry, John Kerry had conversation with John McCain going back in 2004. John McCain had conversations with Joe Lieberman. One of the concerns they both had was would the. Would the convention revolt against that? And I think there is a circumstance, particularly with a whole lot of Bernie Sanders delegates in the crowd, that uh, that's a possibility. Uh, you know, we're talking about theoreticals here, and the idea of a unity ticket, I think, has a lot of relevance. But it could be that there's a uh, that there's an independent out there or even a Republican out there that Hillary Clinton could turn to. Theoretically possible. We also heard this week Donald Trump rule that out going the other direction. Uh, there had been maybe some preliminary talk about Jim Webb on a Trump ticket, and, and Trump did say— told our colleague George Stephanopoulos the other day that uh, his running mate would in fact be a Republican.
0: And here's the thing. As you know, the delegates actually vote for the vice presidential nominee as well. So if there's a revolt, they can actually block it. It means something, right? Yeah, it actually means something. But if you go back to 2008, I mean, there was was a lot of talk that John McCain – wanted to name Joe Lieberman as his running mate, uh, but it equally clear that the Republican delegates simply would not have gone for that and what a I mean what a turn of events that was even to have him under consideration obviously he had been Al Gore's running mate. He could have been the first person ever to be the running mate uh, for two different campaigns, maybe two different losing campaigns two different parties uh, but it, it definitely but I think the question gets at something that is really interesting about the choice that Hillary Clinton is going to need to make i entirely agree there is an opportunity here. There is a real opportunity here uh, for, for Democrats to try to pull over independents and Republicans who are horrified at the possibility of, of a Trump presidency. And Hillary Clinton needs to decide, is she, with her VP pick, going to turn and try to attract those people, or is she going to try to appeal to the people that have driven the excitement and the energy behind the Bernie Sanders campaign? It's a real dramatic choice, does she turn Left or does she turn? Well, she won't really turn right. Does she turn towards the middle? All right, Rick. Now we've got a second question. Uh, this one also on the ever-important Veepstakes uh, topic. Next question: Who should or will Donald Trump pick as a running mate? Thoughts on John Kasich? Well, Rick, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to try. I'm going to jump in and try Go for this it. one first. Uh, I will tell you that um, John Kasich has been absolutely adamant for a long time. I remember interviewing him right after he got into actually before he got into the race when he was when he was thinking about it about whether or not he would think about being a uh, vice presidential candidate. He said absolutely not. He said he would be a horrible at it and and he would never even consider it. But I will tell you this. Talking to senior uh, people in the Trump campaign, there is a lot of consideration being given to John Kasich and Trump himself, in interviews, has has said good things about Kasich uh, in the last 24 hours and said that he would be somebody he would consider. I would definitely put John Kasich in the top tier of possible... Uh, running mate choices uh, for Donald Trump. The question is whether or not Kasich would would accept it if it got to that.
1: And Trump himself has said that uh, there's a, about a 40% chance, which I love that percentage, it's the best percentage, and not just because Donald Trump says it, 40% chance that his his running mate will be one of his former rivals. Of course, that's a group that includes Ted Cruz and, and Marco Rubio and Scott Walker, uh, but I, I, I would tend to agree with you that the idea of Kasich, uh, Ohio, very popular governor uh, of Ohio, would be intriguing for him. But my mother- money, John, is on Newt Gingrich. I I think if you align what Donald Trump has been saying about what he wants on a running mate... Uh, the idea of uh, government experience and someone that can get things done legislatively and you know knows the process and can help in the political sphere with what we know about Newt Gingrich, which is this is a guy that has said good and positive things about Donald Trump for a long time. Has said that um, that, uh, that you know we we know this would basically be his last campaign. I mean, this is not someone with with further ambitions. He really would have nothing to lose in doing it. Uh, he would help actually governing in the same way that the, the Cheney being chosen by George W. Bush would help in the governing more than the politicking. I, I, I just I, I think there's a real chance it's new. That's that's where my money is today.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I've got to agree with you, uh, given that Trump has said that he wants somebody with legislative experience, and he seems to be talking about somebody who is not simply the kind of candidate you pick to help win a state, but somebody that would actually help him govern. Rick, we are out of time for the Powerhouse Politics podcast. Please send us your questions via Twitter. Again, it's hashtag PowerhousePolitics. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and write us a review. Rick, have you written us a review? We want everybody to write us a review. Okay, I,
1: I can't admit to to that. <laughs> I may have had my mom write a review though. I not There's a forty percent chance of that.
0: Is she the one that only gave us three stars? Well, yeah,
1: exactly. She wants to, You know, she she's, she's a little she's a little disturbed by the conversation sometimes. But what can you do?
0: Okay. And by the way, did you know you can also check out our ABC News podcast on abcnewspodcast.com? For Rick Klein, I'm Jonathan Carl. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch up with you right here next week.